0: I want to welcome you guys. My name's Tony. I have the privilege of serving here at Wellsprings. Awesome to see you. Uh, If you are a kid and would like to hang out with other kids, Miss Jeannie is over there. She would love to have tons of fun. If you would like fun, that's where she is. If you want to learn about the way of Jesus, go with her. Now, as you came in, you should have been given a little uh, survey to fill out. Hopefully you were able to fill it out as you sort of drifted in and been kind of hanging out. Uh, If you haven't, take a second right now and just jot your answers. This isn't something, you're not going to be quizzed on it later. Um, I'll talk about it in a minute, but if you haven't filled it out, just take a second and we'll dive in in a minute um, to sort of the content of that and why it's important. Now, if you're, uh, while you do that, I'll do a quick sort of overview. If you're surprised, like maybe you came last week and you're like, so cultural conversations, huh? Like Marie Kondo, that's interesting. And today we're talking about mindfulness and you're like, I never thought I would go to a church and hear a sermon about Marie Kondo or mindfulness or next week is superhero movies. Uh, And you're thinking, what is going on here? So one of our convictions is that Jesus has a word for us in our cultural moment here in the peninsula, in the United States of America, and that these things, Marie Kondo, mindfulness, superhero movies, keto, whatever, that those are all windows into our cultural moment. And they can actually be ways that Jesus speaks into what is actually going on in our everyday life, and that we shouldn't actually divorce all the things that are happening outside in the culture around us from our following of Jesus in everyday life. And in fact, if you are a follower of Jesus, there are going to be opportunities. There are going to be points in the day when you show up at work, or you show up at a play date, or you show up at a coffee shop, and the person you're meeting with is going to be talking about one of these things. Should we not be the kind of people that can also add something in? Jesus invites us to be his witnesses in the world. Part of that is having a sense of what would God have to say about things that maybe we wouldn't cover every Sunday morning. Now, if you hate this idea of these cultural conversations, don't worry. We just have two more after this, and then we'll get back into John. If you love it, uh, we're going to do it all year. No, just kidding. Uh, But it's just sort of a a way to lean in to things that are going on around us. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about mindfulness. Uh, We're going to do a brief definition. We're going to get into what does this mean? And then we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about What might Jesus affirm here? And what might Jesus question or challenge? I want to start with a definition because I think this is actually crazy important uh, because we're going to all come in with different presuppositions of what we even mean by mindfulness, depending on how we've encountered it in everyday life. This is a definition. Mindfulness is simply the ability to be present in the here and now, fully engaged with whatever you're doing at the moment. All right, so... Often we hear this mostly practiced in two distinct ways in our cultural environment. One, uh, if you're sort of a teacher at a school or in a lot of government spaces, right? It's like mindfulness is mostly applied in a secular way. There's really no like spiritual trappings to it. It's dealing with, there's a lot of clinical research we'll get into in a minute that actually says, oh, actually being present in the present moment is actually helpful. Uh, There's also a sort of Zen or more Buddhist application that has different trappings, which we'll get to in a minute, often is sort of related to a self emptying, right? So you're actually losing self to sort of become one with the universe, right? Those are two different ways that mindfulness goes. Defined though, those are like applications of mindfulness. Mindfulness in itself is simply being present. Make sense? All right, so there's a lot of reasons for its popularity. One is there's tons of studies. If you go on Uh, University of Pennsylvania, Mayo Clinic, wherever. They'll say, Mindfulness has been studied and shown to reduce stress, anxiety, pain, depression, insomnia, and high blood pressure. Hmm. Not a bad resume. Uh, Also, there's all brain scans that have been done on the brain with people that are practicing mindfulness. And what they watch is the gray matter in your brain helps control emotional regulation and it helps control problem solving. Gray matter in your brain increases with regular practice of being present. Also, what, they'll, what they show, these brain scans, is that the amygdala, which controls how we experience stress, fear, and anxiety, decreases in size with regular practice of mindfulness, being present. Right? So what you see, gray matter increase, amygdala decrease. Ah, we're all happy and having fun. Now, it's because of these studies that places like Google, right? they actually have whole curriculums set up for their staff uh, they, they call it this, the Search Inside Yourself curriculum. Uh, this is their application of mindfulness. General Mills, in every one of its buildings in its main campus in Minneapolis, has a mindfulness room. And the question is, why? Right? Why is mindfulness like taking our culture by storm? It's everywhere. Why is that? Because on a deep level, I think as we lean into our cultural moment, what we see is there's a profound amount of anxiety in our culture. There's a profound sense of stress and hurry below the surface. And our cultural response is to say, all right, what do we do with this? So mindfulness pops up almost everywhere. Now, the question we want to ask today is imagine there's like a panel. You have a secular humanist, you have a Zen Buddhist, you have an anxious mom, maybe you have someone who's uh, struggling with depression, they're on a panel, the person who's facilitating the conversation goes around and is like, okay, so what do you think is helpful about mindfulness, right? And they each get the mic, and then the mic shows up in Jesus's hands. What does he say? I think there's two things in particular I think Jesus would start with. And obviously, if he was here, I'd let him, you know, give him the mic. Um, But instead, you have me. Uh, So what would he say? I think two things he'd start with. The first is, I think, a word about hurry in our culture and its connection to the spiritual life. And the second one, I think, is a worry about training and the need for us. But let's start with hurry. A few weeks ago, I... um, read a book, and in it, there's uh, John Ortberg was telling this story. John Ortberg is a teacher, a preacher, and a writer. Uh, He was living in Chicago at the time. This was a number of years ago when he had little kids running about his house. And he was calling a spiritual mentor of his named Dallas Willard, who was the head of USC's philosophy department and a wise follower of Jesus. He's calling him from Chicago. His life's a mess. He's juggling all kinds of things, which I think maybe we can relate to, you know if we had a wise spiritual friend, we might call them too. And he gets on the phone with Dallas and he's like, all right, Dallas, I need help. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live a healthy life. What do I do? Dallas is known for these like long pauses. It's like this pause and John's sitting on the phone like, oh, what is going to happen? And this is what Dallas says to him. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John writes it down. He's like, all right, what else? You know, he's got an hour and he's like, all right, awesome. A nugget one, keep them coming, you know? What else? Dallas known for his long pauses, he pauses again. He says this, there is nothing else. Now, you might be wondering, like, hurry? Like, seriously? There is nothing else other than hurry. Maybe this was contextual, right, to John Ortberg's life at that time in Chicago, you know, juggling kids, ministry, all these different things going on in his life. But I also think maybe we should consider that hurry is actually more destructive and undermining to our spiritual lives than we might previously have thought. All right, Jesus, he is literally God, right? Like God. And yet in the midst of ministry, what does he do? He regularly leaves the hustle and bustle, takes time to be in silence and solitude to slow down with his father. In the Hebrew songbook and prayer book, uh, it says this, Psalm forty-six, ten. be still and know that I am God. Paul consistently, he says, hey, we got to be a people of prayer. He even tells people, hey, you should be praying without ceasing. Acts 2 depicts the early church as a community that is devoted to prayer, right? That's not, hey, they prayed in the morning for 15 minutes. They're praying all the time. But this is the thing about hurry. Hurry takes us out of the present moment. And the thing is, we connect to God now, right? The future and the past exist in our brains. We imagine them. We either remember them or imagine them. The present is now, and that is when we connect to God. And I think sometimes when we're hurrying and we're rushing about, we actually miss what God is up to. We actually miss the present being of God now. Have you ever wondered why maybe you don't feel like you're experiencing much of Jesus? Have you ever wondered why when you look back over the course of the last few years, you're like, I wonder why I haven't haven't grown. I wonder if we need to think about how hurry is potentially undermining our life with Jesus. Now put yourself in John Orpberg's shoes, right? Eliminate hurry from your life. Would you even know whether or not like what to do at that point? Like, would you even know? Like, how, how hurried am I? Well, thank goodness. The University of Pennsylvania gave us those little surveys that are in your laps right now. If you filled it out and you see a lot of threes, fours, and fives in that survey, you're probably a little more affected by hurry than you would like to admit. If you have a ton of ones, awesome. You're rocking it. Feel free to leave. Um, But if you see a lot of threes, fours, and fives, the thing is you are not alone. This has actually become the norm of our culture. There's this book that was written in 2014 called Overwhelmed. And the author, her presupposition at the beginning of the book was, you know what? I think this is just like this hurry thing. It's just really indicative of like New York City and coastal culture. I'm going to go to North Dakota She takes a plane, flies to North Dakota, meets with a bunch of people, and she's like, oh, my gosh. North Dakota is exactly like New York City. Every place in the United States, people are hurrying and rushing about. When I was in Silicon Valley for a number of years, I worked with a lot of Stanford students. And uh, one of the things that Stanford's fascinating is this thing called duck syndrome. This is the idea. When you go to a lake and you look at a duck above the surface, that duck looks so peaceful. It's like, oh, I just want to pet it. It's like so cute, you know. But under the surface, the duck is like this. And the idea was that was a Stanford student. You looked at them out on the outside. Whoa, they got everything together. Underneath, though, they're panicking. They're anxious. They're struggling. Stanford culture has become American culture. Where we are sort of present this face on Facebook you know Facebook, Instagram, wherever in everyday life, like we got it all together, but underneath the surface, there is a welling up of anxiety, often connected to hurry. Maybe you relate to this. this is uh, Cruella Deville, me trying to excel in my career, maintain a social life, drink enough water, exercise, text everyone back, stay sane, and survive, and be happy. Yay! She's chasing, chasing Dalmatians, you know? We're not. We're chasing other things. Which brings us to, I think, the second thing that Jesus would say. He'd say, yeah, mindfulness, I like this push towards slowing down. I think that's good. I think he would also agree with sort of the general uh, sort of connection with mindfulness with this idea of practice or training. You'll almost never go to someone who's a practitioner of mindfulness, and they'll say, yeah, just be mindful. Almost never. There's almost always a correlated practice. Maybe it's meditation, whatever. There's a lot of variance in how it is applied. But I think Jesus more often would not. While he will have some pushback here, and we'll get to in a minute, I think he more or less would agree with, hey, you can't expect to be immediately present without practice. Because I think sometimes in the church, we think, You read the Bible and you think, people are like instantaneously changed. And we think, what's wrong with God? Like, I prayed today. Why am I not more peaceful? Why am I not more peace loving? Why can't I love my enemy? Why am I so mad at this car in front of me going so slow? Dallas Wilder again, he has this great quote. He says this, effort is not opposed to earning. Training isn't opposed to grace. This idea of, yes, the gospel is of grace. We cannot earn anything, but that doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't have effort. It doesn't mean we don't train. But if we want to be present to God, we're going to need to train our minds and our hearts and our bodies to be present to God. Mark Labberton, I had a privilege of being able to hang out or hear Mark speak uh, earlier this week. Mark Labberton is the president of Fuller. And he talks about this. He says, there are mesmerizing rhythms in our culture and they mesmerize us. They said, we need to be the kind of people that are not just swept up into the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. But if we want to practice the way of Jesus, we actually need to train our minds and our hearts in the way of Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, exercise daily in God. Workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so making you fit both today and forever. 1 Corinthians 9, he alludes to the Olympic Games. He's like, hey, athletes, they believe in strict training. You guys should too. This is so, not so that we can like rock it at a quiet time, right? But so that all of our life exudes who Jesus is. When we go to work, when we show up here, when we fold laundry, when we interact with our kids, right? 1 Corinthians 10 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. So if Jesus was handed the mic, he's on this panel, I think he'd talk about hurry and how it's massively impacting us. I think he'd also talk about, hey, you can't just expect to be transformed. Like I think these mindfulness guys, they got something here. Like you got to do something. You actually have to practice and God will partner with you in the transformation. But I think he would have some pretty serious questions to ask as well. Two questions in particular. The first one is about the goal. What is the point of presence? And the second one is going to be about the means. How do we get there? Let's talk about this first one, the goal. All right, so the secular sort of humanist embrace of mindfulness is kind of akin to Google's search inside yourself lounge or curriculum, right? The secular application of mindfulness is something like learn to slow down so you can be true to yourself. That's sort of what a secular person or secular culture is going to say, right? And the idea often is, well, at least I'm going to decrease stress and anxiety and those kind of things. If there's a spiritual component, it's sort of like alignment with the universe. Uh, In more of a Zen Buddhist perspective, it's going to be more towards self-emptying. so the Zen application of this is a little more like I'm going to empty myself and then have sort of oneness with the universe, right? That's how a Zen application is going to work. Both of those are primarily about what is happening right now in the here and now. They have nothing to do with participation in an eternal kingdom. And this is where I think Jesus is really going to question the goal. For Jesus, the goal is not to be true to yourself. For Jesus, the goal of presence is not to empty. For Jesus, the goal is to be present to God. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, he quotes this guy named Ed B. Clowney who writes this, the Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. Right? That the Bible is all about, it's all about God from beginning to end. It is not about these practices. It is about God and then the practices become a means of connecting with the God of the universe. Tim Keller says this, We should do everything possible to hold our God as he is. Prayer will follow. The more clearly we, we grasp who God is, the more our prayer is shaped and determined accordingly. God is the beginning as the creator and sustainer and redeemer of all creation. He is the beginning. He is the point of our prayer. He is the point of presence. If we were going to do like a little doodle of it. Whoop, drop that. There we go. If what is the like, what is the goal? Right in like a, a secular world. If we have, that's the self. It's all about sort of being present so we know ourselves, so we can be true to ourself, right? In a Zen Buddhist world, it's sort of like we're going to empty self and get sort of a, we got to decrease all attachment and connect to the universe. But we're losing self in order to connect with the universe. For Jesus... The goal for the self is about connecting to God. And it is in connecting with God, the being of God, that we see ourself truly. We go out, connect with God, and is in the relationship with the creator that we actually understand who we are. It's not self emptying, it's not be true to yourself. To be true to God. And then in relationship to God, we actually understand ourselves for the first time. Presence is about connecting to God and in the context, in the relationship, in the connection with God, we see self. This is one of the reasons, like if you read through Paul's letters, he's constantly saying, hey guys, I'm praying for you. Hey, I'm praying for you. You could go through almost all the letters. You can go through Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, Ephesians 3. Every time Paul's like, hey, I'm praying for you guys. They're being persecuted. Their lives, they have illnesses just like we do, right? They're struggling just like we are. And yet every single time, what is Paul's prayer? It's like almost always the same. Ephesians 1, 17 captures it. I keep asking that you may know him better. It is all about for God, for Paul, all about us knowing and connecting with God. That is the point of presence. That is the point of slowing down. Stress reduction, anxiety reduction, those are byproducts of connecting with the God of the universe who then slows us down into our creaturely selves and we settle into his sovereignty and his love. But this is Psalm 27, four. One thing I ask from the Lord is only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. Again, Tim Keller, prayer is seeking to respond and connect to God. The way we do that We slow down into the God who is present with us. When we hurry, we're rustling about, we don't connect with or respond to how God is working in our life. Right, we're just all over the place, scattered. God is here and we're like, ah, running around. Keller also says this, which is way more challenging. To fail to pray, slow down, be with God, respond to him, connect. To fail to pray is not merely to break some religious rule. Sometimes I think we think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't pray this week. Oh, I'm so bad. Oh, yeah. You know, we go through that little dance cognitively. I'm so guilty. It says this, to fail to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. Right? That God is actually the God of the universe. He's the one who orients our lives. He is the one who helps us understand who we are and what we're made to do in this world. That to not slow down and be present to God, to connect to and respond to him, is to failure to treat the glory and the majesty of God with the due reverence he is owed. So I think Jesus would say, he was handed that mic, he's like, what questions or challenges you might have? He'd say, well, I think one of the challenges I would have is about the goal of all this. Is it so that we can like enjoy the seashore and like appreciate the contours of that tree or the contrast between the green and the blue of the sky? Sure, those are great. But the goal, the ultimate goal of slowing down is to be present to the God of the universe. Two, I think he would have some questions about the means. How do we get there? How do we become people that are present? So as apprentices of Jesus, right, the goal is not simply to have a 10-minute quiet time in the morning and say, oh, man, I've done this 365. Man, like I'm faithful, right? That is not the end goal. The end goal is to live in the presence of God, right? Pray without ceasing, be still and know that I'm God, not just at 8:10 in the morning, but throughout the day, right? This is why when you get into the first century, right, the model of rabbinic discipleship isn't, Hey, let's meet at a coffee shop for 15 minutes, then go about your life. Let's catch up again in three weeks, right? What is a rabbi with his disciples, his talmudim? What does he do, right? The disciples follow the rabbi. They walk with him. They're supposed to walk in the dust of the rabbi and be covered in the dust of his feet, right? So the idea is you walk by him and his sandals kind of flick off the dust and you're walking so closely that the dust gets on your legs, You're covered in the dust of the rabbi. You're with him, right? This is why in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus is talking. He says this, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me, be with me, be present with me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, right? The yoke is what the animal wears that's sort of tilling the field, right? Take that on, be with me, be connected to me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's this connectedness. Eugene Peterson in the message captures it this way. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Connection, togetherness. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, be with me. Let's hang out together. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Right, so the means, we got to be with Jesus somehow. And the question is, how do we learn from the person of Jesus? How do we become present to him? Now, there's a certain advantage in the first century. Like if you were one of those 12, you literally, he was walking, and you literally got to walk with him. There was a physicality there that was pretty cool. But how do we transfer that into a 21st century sort of way of understanding of how do we follow Jesus? How are we present to him? Two things, right? We have been given the New Testament and the Old Testament, that they are the self-revelation of God. God is saying, this is who I am, take a look, read. And then we also have access to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who then through those texts and in other ways speaks to us and shapes us and informs us how to follow. So what is the means? It's not simply, hey, slow down by the seashore and take it all in, smell a rose, right? That's the proverbial cultural expression. Slow down, smell the roses. No, no, no. For us, it's slow down, be in the scriptures, listen to the spirit speaking to you through the scriptures that you can become a person who is present to the story of God and the spirit of God speaking to you to shape you into his image. Martin Luther, um, a number of years ago, he, uh, he used to go to a barber, the same barber all the time. And one day he was getting his hair cut and the barber's like, you know, Martin, mind if I call you Mart?" Uh, He was like, hey, can you teach me how to pray? And Martin Luther being the the academic and the theologian he is and the writer, he's like, you know what? Give me a minute, let me think about it. And he wrote him a letter. And throughout history, this letter has been passed down as like, okay, how do you pray? How do you become present to and respond to God and connect with him? Few things he emphasized. He says this, One, habit is a prayer formed through regular practice. Prayer is a habit formed through regular practice. It requires training. Two, he says, you know, Barber, let's call him Frank. Frank, I don't know his name. We'll just call him Barber. Okay, Barber, also I suggest, like, pray in the morning. Take some time when you first wake up. Make some space for God. And then I suggest, when you go to bed, make a little more space for God. Then he says, during these little spaces, he says, you know what I'd suggest? Take out the Bible. Be present to the scriptures. God has disclosed his heart and his life through these texts. Slow down in them. Marinate in them. You know what? As you sit in these texts, actually the Spirit will speak to you through these texts. And you'll probably be stirred a little bit. Ooh, my life is really out of alignment with this. Or God, I didn't think you were that way. And then, you know, a conversation starts. Martin Luther says, you know, one of the best places to start is actually the Lord's Prayer. Kind of like actually what we did at the very beginning of service. Just walk through it slowly, step by step. Oh, Abba, Father. Wow. How amazing that I have a God, who is our father. Oh, he's holy. Oh, God, thank you for being holy. I can trust you because you are good. And Just allow the text to shape us. And then as we're in these scriptures, then God reveals his heart to us and then he convicts us through the spirit, right? And then we learn as we then go about everyday life. Oh, okay. Oh, I remember that story of how you showed up, God. And then the character of God follows us throughout the day. The stories of God's people follow us. And then we learn to listen to the spirit through the text. And then as we go about everyday life, we're like, oh yeah, that's how God speaks. And so if Jesus was handed the mic in this panel discussion, I think he'd first say, hey, being present is all about God. And two, I think he'd say, you know what? I really think if you want to be a person who is present, it starts by being present, slowing down into the scriptures. And as you're slowing down in the scriptures, listening to the speaking voice of the spirit. And when you do that, it'll form you into the kind of person who can be present to God, pray without ceasing throughout the whole day. Again, Mark Labberton uh, over this week, one of his talks, he said this, really struck me, said this. What we have to offer the world is rootedness in reality. God is the ultimate reality, right? God is what is most true in the world. When we become a hurried, disconnected people, a people that are disconnected from God, disconnected from the scriptures, disconnected from the spirit, because we're just running about like Cruella de Vil, chasing the Dalmatians, we lose touch with reality and we lose touch with what we most profoundly have to offer the world a rootedness in the being and presence and goodness of God. Jesus, yes, wants us to be present. He wants us to be present to him. He wants us to be present to the scriptures. He wants us to be present to the spirit, speaking to the scriptures so that we can be a people that are rooted in the reality of who God is, who we are, and then we can be his living billboards in the world. To help us do that as we enter into worship, she's going to invite us to celebrate uh, communion together. Communion is one of the practices that Jesus told us to do to remember him. And it reminds us of the character and the heart of God. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread and gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat it. And he took the cup of wine that was on the table and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we gather today as a hurried and distracted people, people who live our lives often more connected with ourselves or other people's opinions than the creator of the universe, we come knowing that Jesus in his grace welcomes us to fellowship. In this moment, right now, He wants to be present to you. One of the things we do here at Wellspring is we, when we celebrate communion is we all stand up and we come forward. And one of the reasons we do that is a way of saying, hey, you know what? Like this isn't just an individual experience. This is about the people of God all saying in this place at this time, Jesus, we want you to be the center of our life. And that we are all pilgrims on a journey trying to be shaped into your image, Jesus. And we're going to all get up and walk towards you to physically enact our spiritual reality. That Jesus is the center. This is not an individual experience, or it's not just an individual experience, but it's an individual experience taking place within a corporate context that we might know the person of Jesus, his grace and forgiveness. And then we might be transformed into his image. And when you come up, someone will be up here and they'll say, the body of Jesus. And in that moment, you have a choice. You have a choice to say, Jesus, ah, I, I take your body. Jesus, I allow you to stay in my stead as a broken creature. Yeah, I take that, Jesus. I accept your grace. And you'll have an opportunity to then take that piece of bread and dunk it in this Uh, grape juice as another way of saying, yeah, Jesus, I receive your sacrifice for me. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're like, I don't know about that, come up and we'll just say a blessing over you that God would be with you in your process. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. I'm just gonna pray for us that we would be able to slow down into Jesus's presence. One of the things we often do before we celebrate communion is just kind of have an honest moment with God. I especially invite you to do that just right now. If there are things in your life that you feel like, man, that shouldn't be there, I shouldn't do that, or man, this is just broken, this is a time to just turn to Jesus in this present moment and say, God, I need help. God, forgive me. God, help me. Jesus, we invite you into this place, into this sacred moment. God, we bring all of who we are into your presence. We ask that you would draw near to us. We ask that you would help us, God, as our minds race towards the checklist and all the things to do today. God, you would help us center into your presence right now. Your Holy Spirit is in this place. God, you are here. God, help us to see you. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to sense and discern your presence. God, forgive us all the ways that we put you on the backseat of our agenda. Jesus, we ask that as we celebrate communion together, that you would move, you would speak, you would come. Reveal your glory to us that we may know ourselves in the light of your presence.